Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Alan Averill. Greetings from the bunker at the end of the world. This is episode 24 of Agitators Anonymous. And I greet you all from the... I greet you all. It has been a while since we have heard from Victor in a state of Frankenstein in a tractor factory. But today is very glorious, very great day. Very great day for him because he is able to do some uh, translation, translations for the Irish state, Irish government. Because, let's be honest, living in Dublin right now is pretty much like living in a satellite Soviet state from 1987 or a satellite Soviet city. So, in the great tradition of um, BuzzFeed, what I'm going to do is to give you the 12 new statutes of the uh, the state of Dublin, uh, which will be for your uh, interpretation and your obedience. Yes, I thank you. Uh, because this is kind of where we are right now. So my good friend and alter ego, Victor, will now read to you uh, the uh, 12 new statutes, as I said, in honour of the BuzzFeed Republic of Ireland, uh, that you must all obey and toe the line to. Number one. Komendanskiches svacetit rozjechov. Which uh, roughly translates in Dublin as 11pm curfew. Thank you very much, buddy. Number two. Na olitze bodit palintia. Which roughly translates into Dublinese as the guards are bleeding everywhere. Number three. Stabeketoitsche du stoitsche vochrektiem. Number three. Basically means, I hope you like a bit of queuing, because you're going to be queuing for stuff. Number four. Zubiskenobra kedetrenu. Number four basically means, you can't travel outside the state. We'll put four countries on your green corridor, but only one of them you can actually fly into. But we'd rather you didn't. Number five. Zabretchenoi Krit Kovyat Stretzva Masavoy Informatsi. Number five roughly translates as Will you bleed believe what the media tell you? Will you? 
Stop asking questions. Or, as my Russian friend would put it, there will be no dissent from the mainstream narrative. Number six. Vai moi shet obsheta sia tolka stiemi skiem mai resreshem. Number six, roughly translate, is listen, you can only hang out with who we tell you you can hang out with. Have you got that? Stay in your bleeding bubble. Number seven, gusso starts ob yeshit vashdonye was right Number seven, which literally translates as do you want your bleeding doll cut, do you? The state now controls your income. Number eight, Eskustvia Tulke on Brenyain Goshodartsvom. Number eight, art. What the fuck is art? What are you talking about, art? There is no art allowed that is not sanctioned by the state, my friends. And the sooner you realise that, the sooner the better. Number nine, Neka Koi. Moi shashem transfiev tiatra ikiamiedi. Number nine roughly translates as there will be no music, no dancing, no gigs, no theatre or comedy allowed. Them are the rules of the state of Dublinistan. Number ten is important. Sab seitia noroish etielkach vlestium. Number 10 is quite important. It basically means we encourage the public to inform on each other at any times possible. If you see anybody having the crack, you better tell on them. Number 11. Number 11. There are no protests. What are you talking about? There was never that many people there at all. Jesus. It's no protest. Nothing to see here. Number 12. Rabotiet Chadoma Nebyeke Dichia. And finally, folks, number 12 is quite important. We encourage you to work from home, and if you could, maybe you'd just stay there. Stay inside. Sure, what's the, what's the point going outside anyway? Grand. There's the 12 point plan for uh, Dublin moving ahead. So, uh, any questions, you must uh, inform your local uh, Politburo if you have a question. Yes, indeed. So, I'm officially now a satirist. I'm available for any uh, talk shows, any radio shows, any if the uh, RTE or the state would like to employ me, I am available. Yes, okay. So, that was my attempt at satire, and I would like to thank my good friend Natasha for the translations so Victor can uh, speak properly to, uh, to his people. But in all seriousness, while that did amuse me for a brief moment, um, there is some serious intent behind my piss-taking, and that is literally that it would seem that Dublin, the county of Dublin, is under the most strict lockdown in the whole of Europe. Um, speaking to people from other countries across Europe, other cities, they find it quite shocking where we are. And so this 
podcast is going to be a little bit of a ramble across those muddy fields to try and reach some form of a, well, not a conclusion because I don't think there is one, but I'm just going to ramble through a couple of opinions about things, a, a few views on what's going on. But the fact is that right now we have an 11 p.m. curfew. There's no pubs or restaurants open, so you can't sit inside. You can't even go inside to have a coffee. Um, there is no gigs, no music, no theatre, no dancing, no comedy, no art, really, of any sort allowed. Um, the state is encouraging people to inform on each other. We have a green corridor of travel of four countries uh, two of which I think are Gibraltar and Liechtenstein or something. Uh, three of the four countries you can't even fly into. And, of course, the mainstream media, for whatever it's worth, um, and I don't like using that pejorative because it, it suggests that nothing that they write is of any worth or on the money, and this is not true, but there just there most definitely doesn't seem to be much dissent or many probing questions of the state. In truth, having spent most of the week looking back at documentaries about other historical precedent, um, oddly enough, this is the 175th year of the anniversary of the famine in Ireland. And I've been looking into a little, a few of the reasons, um, let's just call them political, English political reasons between 1845 and 1849, things I didn't know. Um, like, for example, the influence of the peelers or the problems within the uh, English political establishment as the as uh, the years between 1845 and 1849 and how uh, relief was hamstrung by uh, a run on gold and etc etc maybe that I shouldn't have diverged off into that uh, lay by quite yet however what I was trying to say what I'm trying to get at is that right now in Ireland we have a, almost like a timeshare government who historically hate each other, Fianna Gael and Fianna Foyle. They both come from the same origin, the same original party, and then they sh split off. There was a schism in the 1920s. Um, and they hate each other. And it's quite clear that one is setting the other up to fall to the detriment of the civil liberties of of the Irish people. And so right now we have Fianna Fáil in charge and to say, I think I tried to explain this in a podcast before, the concept of the cute whore, H-O-O-R. You might want to go back and listen to one or two podcasts ago to hear me try and explain what that means. Um, but that seems to be one of the things that is very prevalent at the moment in Irish society is we are being hamstrung by a government that relies on the left hand hates the right hand, but they need each other for the majority. And so we're going round in this cycle of political cowardice. And the truth is, like I said, that Dublin is the most locked down, as I can see it, city in the whole of Europe, which I would have understood if this was 1972 or 1985 and Charlie Hawhey was still in charge and, you know, people was busy telling us to tighten our belts and all that kind of thing. There's an Irish reference for people of a certain age. But if it was 1986 and that was the reference, which, of course, Ireland lived through, you know, the 1980s was a time of great poverty and emigration. People fled the country in their tens of thousands. We sent our brightest 
our best and our young hopes for the future with their education out into the world because Ireland couldn't provide for those people. And I do wonder where, once the dust has, well, settled or we just have to learn how to breathe it in from this situation that we're in, where those people are going to go, because I don't think they're going to have anywhere to go. That's a different story. However, um, if this was 1986 and Charlie Hawhey was still at the helm, I would have expected this. But what does that mean? Does that mean our political status, our political institutions haven't changed since the 1980s? They're still as incompetent as they were? Maybe, maybe so. I read an article during the week which basically said that art is seen as a luxury in Ireland, not a, not a necessity. In other cities and across the Europe, there's an attempt to open artistic spaces back up to the public because it's seen as something that's vital to the um, not only the mental well-being, but the welfare of the people of the state. And it's the state that is supporting those ventures, whether it's a movement towards open air theatre in Berlin or gigs being allowed in with some temperance across Europe here. And people are really surprised when I say this. Absolutely nothing. Everything remains shut. There is Dublin is, as I said, is literally like a satellite Soviet state in uh, 1987. And for all those, you know, for all those kids marching under a hammer and sickle around the world looking to try and overthrow the um, current political structure, just send me an email. I'll tell you what it's like to live in a communist state. It's very, very boring. It's very, very boring. I digress. I digress, I bitch, and I try and do a little bit of, um, you know, I, I attempt satire for the first time, shall we say. Um, is it the first time? I don't know. I will say this, though, that the protests in Ireland are starting to get bigger and bigger. Um, what was first maybe portrayed as one or two thousand people now looks, the optics much look much more like 15 or 20 or 25,000. But I had the same discussions with 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 friends who are there's something very strange happening, which is that when it suits Irish people, they lean into a romantic notion of us as rebels, a romantic notion of of Irish people as as resisting authoritarianism. It's somehow romantically linked to our psyche. But yet at the same time, the people who are worried about that are unwilling to stand beside people in a greater gathering against something like, you know, or at least to question what's happening because it's still being portrayed. And at least I had the arguments in the last week or two, people saying to me, oh, it's the anti-hygiene protests, the anti-hygiene protests. Why don't we call it the civil liberty protests instead? But I understand that that's too much of an existential threat for most people to be able to fully grasp and get their heads around because people are busy. They've got kids to bring up. They've got school runs to try and organize. And as I said to one of my friends, I said, I'm not looking for 100 percent of your critical faculties or to allow your brain to shuffle along to the same dark recesses that I spend most of the time inhabiting. I'm not asking you to do that, but I would like maybe could it be possible to have 10 percent of your critical attention to maybe wonder about some of the actions of the state to maybe take 10%, just a moment, to wonder 
are these protests really about face masks, for example? It would seem to me that the face mask is just a totem, a tokenistic um, symbol when it comes to these debates. And it's used in order to not fully intellectually engage with what's happening. So therefore, we can one side can dismiss it and the other side can dismiss it. Now, I have to admit that it would be very helpful if somebody could perhaps curate some of the banners that people are marching under in um, the Irish protests. Uh, if, I, if they gave me, um, you know, like a small reference, I could stand at the behest of this gathering and go, guys, guys, you got to lose the got to lose the QAnon and 5G um, banners. Because what's clear is that normal people, even if they have and share concerns with some of the protests, they don't want to be standing beside somebody with a sign that says, you know, connecting everyone to uh, some sort of massive paedophile conspiracy. They just aren't going to stand beside those people. Which, of course, is ironic, coming from a country which literally handed over its own children to the Catholic Church for 150 or so years. But maybe that's a podcast for another day. We did have an article in the Irish Times, um, an article talking about the rise of the far right in Ireland. Now, maybe these are murky waters to get to wade into, but there's a few things to be said and understood about Irish nationalism and Irish patriotism, so to speak. And that is that Irish nationalism is left wing. The IRA are, or the only political party in Ireland to, at the moment, be saying, open things up, give people back some of their freedoms and treat them responsibly is Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin historically was the political side of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. And they were left wing. There is a lot of Marxist theory underpinning their socialist view of the world. So... When you see people on the streets waving Irish flags, you will see Socialist Workers' Party. It's not a symbol of the far right, as this article in the Irish Times was trying to suggest. I think there's an attempt to link it there, to, of course, to Trump and things happening in America. And there are elements, there is an inheritance of some curious religious right-wing movements from the 80s and the 90s, Opus Dei and these kind of people, who were briefly popular in Ireland in the late 80s, early 90s, who mainly ran on anti-abortion platforms. But to suggest they're politically far right, I think is uh, incorrect. I think they're more maybe religious, uh, you know, traditional Catholic values, traditional 1950s Irish style values. But again, it's an attempt to muddy the waters without really reporting on the nature of the protests in Ireland. Because... The truth is that you will see more Celtic football T-shirts than anything else. So, I mean, are we going to blame Celtic Football Club for, you know, instigating um, a great percentage of the people who are out there protesting? I think not. This is not to say, of course, there are people, there are not people of every political persuasion who are protesting against civil liberties. Because here, if we think of politics as a horseshoe, so to say, there is a moment where the left and the right meet around the end of that horseshoe. And on issues like civil liberties and issues like personal freedoms, I think that if people could stop the flag waving and the chest beating and the histrionics and the hysterical 
um, polarization, they would probably see that the reality is they're center left, center right, or in the center, actually, but that many of the people have the same concerns, the same worries. And as I said at the beginning of this, and I said two podcasts ago when I did the um, Smarmy I Told Just So um, headline, it was that, do we really expect our everything to be handed back exactly as we left it to the state? I think that that was a pretty naive consideration because we've handed it over to a political level of political cronyism that is bent on, of course, re-election. It's, they're involved in the re-election cycle. In Ireland, we have this phrase, parish pump politics, which means that the local, local politics is what dominates the uh, Irish political landscape, which means that you can go and have a pint with your local TD in, the, in a pub and, you know, brown envelopes were slipped from one pocket to another um, over the decades. And we have very, we have a very, how can I explain? We have very great access to our politicians in Ireland. And that's what leads to a level of cronyism, a level of uh, parochialism to Irish society, to Irish politics. So right now, I think we're stuck in a cycle of parochial re-election of a level of cronyism and cowardice where nobody, no adult in the room is willing to say, look, okay, we understand uh, the severity of the situation, but we are going to try and trust you and open society back up for the greater good. But together we have to place some trust in each other. I haven't really heard that from anyone in the room. All we get, I think, is the willingness to kick the can down the road continuously in the hope that um, either a vaccine appears out of nowhere, but I mean, what? Do we have any? Um, we don't know that that's, an, that that's going to happen for sure. We don't know. But when you have, as I said, the two tenants of this timeshare apartment uh, living in such close quarters to each other who traditionally hate each other and are trying to scupper each other's ship, to hold each other's ship, so to speak. That sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? Um, it's hardly surprising that there's this level of adolescent one-upmanship and sniping that's going on below decks. I'm still keeping with that nautical theme. Yes, indeed, matron. Has anybody seen Seaman Stains? Perhaps he's below deck. What am I talking about now? Maybe you can tell I'm a little bit deranged this week. I'm a little bit manic, a little bit angry. I have to admit that even though, as I said, I told you so, um, it still doesn't make some of these regulations and um, seem even, it still doesn't make them any easier to deal with. So, you know, what could I do but go and ask my friend uh, Natasha for some Russian translations so I can, uh, you know, do my best to try and make fun of situation. Um, uh, also, I would appeal to the um, people of Liechtenstein who are on our Green Corridor list. If you would like me to uh, abdicate and become your new king, monarch, ruler, just let me know. Just DM me. DM me on Instagram. I'm quite willing to abdicate the throne here in uh, Ireland, in Dublin, and come over and become your new ruler. If you would like that, I have uh, some great 
plans for the coming century. And I think that we could really, really have a solid relationship together. Well, you've got till the weekend, because I imagine next week's Green Corridor will be something completely different. Maybe it could be the Principality of Monaco or another tiny um, feudal state, Andorra, perhaps we can travel freely to. So I appeal to any tiny uh, medieval city-state in the world that somehow still exists that needs a new ruler. Uh, just get in touch. Get in touch. I have free time. I have free time. I can draw up a new constitution for you. No problem. Anyway, what else am I talking about? Now, there is one other thing. I keep saying one other thing. Um one of the few things that's been keeping me sane throughout all of this um, strange situation is playing football. And oddly enough, the evening before beginning to make this podcast, I was playing football with a bunch of Russian guys uh, and Ukrainian guys. And it was really interesting to get their take on what's happening here. And they found my, you know, my pigeon Russian quite amusing. They were uh, listening with kind of... Uh, at childlike glee at my ridiculous attempts at talking Russian and the reasons for which I'm doing it. But, you know, once we started talking, we were standing around, um, they did sort of say to me that even they were quite shocked at what was happening in Ireland. Uh, one of them had just come back from Moscow and he still couldn't believe that the state was leaving theatre and uh, comedy and art and everything everything else almost the entire sector to just die on the vine and he made a joke you know because well, he's about the same age as me he said yeah you know even in uh, even in old days uh, we had theatre we had good you know some good uh, classical music and stuff you know he was being flippant in his late 40s I guess you know mid 40s maybe um, or perhaps I've put years on him there but his point was that even in those days now of course I understand that my false equivalency of comparing a couple of weeks or months of lockdown is not quite the same. You understand to not quite take everything I'm saying entirely seriously. But there is some serious intent behind some of it. But the guys, they stood around. They were telling me, you know, I mean, I was asking where they came from and how things are back there. And one of the guys had just come back from Kiev in the Ukraine. And he just said to me, he said, man, nobody's observing any of these rules. There's vague rules and regulations, but the people are in no humor to deal with them. They're in no humor to toe the line with these. Don't forget, they only just had, um, you know, they had their own uh, conflict there only a couple of years ago. And there's certainly no way that the people are just going to be told to stay inside and told to toe the line for this, that and the other. And I said, how are the deaths, how are things being reported? And he said, oh, we have just under 4,000 is what he said. Now, of course, somebody can go and check that up. But for a population of 42 million, uh, that represents pretty good odds, it would seem. And he just said, no, there's no distancing. There's no masks. People are just living their lives. And at least here in the, you know, culturally American hegemonic 53rd state, we never hear about how other countries are doing like this or how other countries, uh, unfashionable uh, countries are doing. How is Romania doing or Hungary or Bulgaria or, or, for example, the Ukraine? How are they dealing with this? And it would seem that by and large, 
they're dealing with it better than we are. And how come you never hear about any of this within our mainstream media narrative? I understand that probably, obviously, the devil is local and, you know, the devil is in the local detail. So therefore, you can see why it has less resonance. But at the same time, for something so all, all important, it is a bit curious. But he just told me, and I think that this is true, is that especially in Eastern Europe, there's an old saying, which is the West never forgets or the East never forgets, the West never remembers. Um, and those countries in Eastern Europe are far less likely to hand over civil liberties and freedoms to their state because they've only had them back, realistically, uh, for 20 or 25 years. So there's generations of people there who remember what it was like to live behind the Iron Curtain. And they aren't going to just hand over all of this, all of these freedoms to, um, to their states. And anecdotally, just talking to these half a dozen guys, uh, they were quite shocked, quite confused by the level of subservience of Irish people, quite shocked at the the lack of um, mainstream uh, opposing narrative. You know, and it just uh, it just made me think. You know, it did make me think twice about butchering their language at the, in my podcast. But you know, food for. Food for some kind of thought, I suppose. There is one thing that I was going to talk about briefly, which is um, is the nature of journalism, uh, just to change tack a little bit. And I actually have a degree in journalism. Um, I, I did it maybe maybe 15 years ago at this stage. And it's interesting to observe that 15 years ago, as a mature student even then, that uh, how unpoliticized the young people were that I went to college with. They were 18 to 19. And to be honest, the um, the soap opera society had more people in it than the politics societies. There was a, almost a complete level of disinterest in politics, which now speaking to my 18 or 19 year old relatives who, well, they should have been starting college now or maybe are in their second year of college and have had that second year snatched from them because everything is on Zoom, um, which is no way to be a student. And they wonder why students are not coping so well with some of these measures, you know, when you're supposed to be living, the, you know, this time of your young life. Anyway, God, I sound like such a middle-aged uh, Academic, yes. Anyway, no, what I'm trying to say is that an awful lot has changed. As I have alluded to before over several of the podcasts, that the, um, how can we say, that we are in, I think, decade a decade of social media derangement is the politest way of putting it. We have become deranged by social media and we're in some sort of brave new world on those terms. And 15 years ago in journalism, um, very few of the students that I at least went to college with, and it was 50, 60 people, were remotely politicized. And the thing about it is, is that, and it's one of the reasons why we get very little investigative journalism anymore, or we get very little bi or nonpartisan journalism anymore, is because the bottom line is that you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, which basically means that there is no living 
to be made in writing anymore, in journalism. And therefore, on those terms, the uh, supplementary income is your idealism. So over the last 10 years, many young people have become radicalised, so to say, or polarised at the very least into identity politics or into one side of the other. And the payoff for not being paid is that you get to have moved your opinion blog onto the broadsheets. So you see articles even in the Irish Times or in the Irish mainstream media. They're not really investigative. They're not really even asking questions of the mainstream narrative. They're towing the line to the mainstream narrative based on their own um, assumption of identity politics, for example. The assertion that people marching and protesting in the streets in Ireland simply because they're holding some of the same signs as people who have been marching in the USA is enough. There's the link, i.e. orange man bad, orange people, orange people, um, orange man bad, and therefore the people marching in the streets who hold up signs with one thing or the other on it. If you see the same things in Ireland, you connect those two things. What am I trying to say? That was a bit confused. My point was that, again, with something like journalism, there is no living to be made in it anymore. Very much like a musician. There's very little of a living to be made for it anymore unless you go on tour. So there's very little money to be made as an investigative or non-partisan journalist anymore. And the supplementary benefit, as I said, is by getting your ideals out there. So you don't really need to go down and speak to people at the protests, for example, in Ireland. You don't really even need to go down and take too much of a look at them. You can make assumptions based on a few optics or a few of the people who have YouTube channels who you see supporting them and that kind of thing. You don't really need to go down and talk to any of the Joe Publics and ask them their opinion about, for example, civil liberty or freedom or any of those things. You can make broad assumptions because it fits into your idealistic view of the world and what you wish to portray. And I think that this is one of the biggest problems that we are having now with free speech because there is a whole generation of people for whom the concept of free speech seems to be something that they see as a bit somewhat of a nuisance that somebody would want to support the idea of free speech. And that is because the crusade of activism um, let's call it the crusade for justice is more important than the concept of civil liberty or personal liberty. At least that's how I see it. And I had to stand up, stand up, rouse about these um, these columns, these articles with people that I know. And I said to them, did you go down and have a look at any of the protests? No. But trying to separate people from these polarized opinions is almost impossible. Because what you do realize, and this is a phrase I was thinking about earlier in the week, is that nuance is surrender. Is that neither side wants to consider a nuanced argument or the fact that human beings are nuanced or that some opinions I have you might agree with, some you might disagree with. That's not the point. If the point is winning, is crusading, is whatever else you want to call it. And so nuance is surrender. And that's a very, just to let that concept sink in for a moment. So trying to suggest to people that um, 
And then you mix that understanding. You mix that understanding with the fact that our new cycle is driven by an algorithm. It's dri driven by a marketing algorithm. I've bored people before by saying this in the podcast. But all of the isms, all of the phobias, they're what drive clicks. Reasoned debate, as I said before, you know, rational woman says reasonable thing, doesn't get any clicks. It doesn't get any traction. And because all of your news media is driven by the same marketing algorithm, it needs clicks. So therefore, all of the salacious, grubby, dirty stuff rises to the top because it has to, because that's actually what people are interested in. So all of these articles are just written to order. I mean, I'm sure the Irish Times saw a big spike in relation to an article with the tagline Ireland and the far right or whatever, because these are the kind of details that drive clicks now. So if we marry those things, we marry our understanding that um, that what we are living through is something of a religious revival is quite complicated sometimes. Um, because in reality, when you argue with the religious or people with faith, you never get through to them in the sense that they don't listen to, you know, objective reason on those terms because they've invested um, so much time into that article of faith. And so your objective reason is just never going to live up to that. And the natural human instinct is to double down when your beliefs are threatened. You know, you're not going to get anywhere with somebody who, um, you know, believes that, you know, the, the earth was created 4000 years ago. Um, or somebody who believes even that the earth is flat, especially not if they are found their fellow religious acolytes online. And also, it's like doing the lottery every single day. The chances of you winning the lottery are so few and far between, so remote, that it really represents a pointless task. But if you invest a small amount of money and effort and time and you walk to the shop every single day and you've been doing it for months, you always hold on to the, the small belief that this could be the day, this could be the ticket, this could be it. And to just quit one day and go cold turkey and go, well, I'm never going to win the lottery, that's the end of that, and just move on to something else with your life if it's, if it's what's mentally obsessed and possessed you for such a long time. Now, obviously, the lottery is a rather... Um, banal and mundane example if you're talking about the afterlife or the rewards of the afterlife. But if the rewards of um, if the rewards of identity politics or the rewards of modern politicking or activism are changing the world and you feel that you're part of an actual movement that could change the world as opposed to, well, whatever else, emptiness that you're trying to deal with existential emptiness on many levels, then you can see how it becomes a religious crusade. And on those terms, I think it's one of the problems that many people, and including myself, have. Um, many people who try and use, or at least I think I try and use, relatively reasonable debate or try and imagine the rational, observational, point-to-point um, view of things is that it doesn't really matter because that's not what the game is. 
the game is winning. The game is my God is greater than your God. My faith is greater than your atheism, so to speak. So when you try and rationally interject um, any of these things into uh, into a debate, you're not going to win as I see it. And that's one of the great problems that we are facing right now in this 10-year derangement cycle via social media is that things that were once shared realities, shared beliefs, shared structures, whether they could be science, are now open to question and interpretation. And they're all, they're all falling apart because the new moral code is based on a um, subjective view of reality. Anyway, pay peanuts, get monkeys. It's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty relevant phrase that I think you can apply to most things. Uh, like I said, you can apply it to the music industry. You can apply it to filmmaking. You can apply it to um, being an author of any kind. But specifically in journalism, it creates or has created quite the vacuum, as I said, in that it being so difficult to make a living that old school journalists or investigative journalists or nonpartisan journalists just don't really... They vacated the building, leaving the space to uh, activism. Anyway, what am I talking about? Should we talk about some heavy metal or should I talk about the American presidential debate? Well, 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 maybe some heavy metal next time. Um, but what a sorry state American politics is in, if that's what we were served up the other night. I really, it's like watching um, the final phase or like, the second final act of a really awful horror film. Um, I really didn't know quite what to think about it. I mean, of course, you know, like I said many times before, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band. If you've subscribed to the podcast, then you probably know that I, I'm going to talk about the odd thing like this here and there. But what a strange and sorry sight uh, it was to witness this debate. Prior to it, I'd gone back and watched a really great documentary series by the comedian Rich Hall about um, the American uh, presidential history and the debates through the years and Lyndon B. Johnson and, um, you know, Goldwater and went through Watergate and Nixon and, you know, Reagan and, well, amongst dozens and dozens of names Adams and Jefferson and all these kind of people and their history and their strange relationships with the parliament of the time um, even going back and looking at the American constitution and of course Rich Hall is a very funny and accomplished comedian who has a very interesting sideways take on all of it but a little prepping for the election debate I thought well what else am I doing let's, let's wade into this let's go back and look at um, what the Constitution was, uh, what it represents, how it was supposed to be interpreted. And it's um, quite an amazing document, how short it is, its brevity, and it's sort of very uh, matter-of-fact and also yet open to interpretation, uh, succinctness. Uh, quite an amazing document, so to speak. But the relationships between um, the presidents and their... Uh, 
uh, I suppose, opposing counterparts throughout the years. It went through all the dirty tricks and scandals and all the incredible ads, TV ads that were back in the day. Um, things that would, I suppose, in our modern context, looking at the shit show that's on display right now, you think that all the dirty tricks are, somehow you think they're new propaganda, but they're not. Some of the, looking back at some of the dirty tricks in some of the old presidential campaigns was quite revealing. Um, and, of course, you know, things like Watergate and Nixon and that kind of thing. But it still didn't quite prepare me for the n almost numbing banality of, of the debate the other day. Um, if you were to ask my opinion about it, I thought Biden didn't seem as uh, decrepit as uh, people had been making out. He didn't seem as... Um, it didn't seem as ready for the grave as many people had been saying. So I suppose on those terms, the fact that he didn't get flustered or put off his stride much um, speaks maybe more to his mental state than uh, people have been giving him credit. Well, as for Trump, Trump is Trump. It's, again, the horror show of having a vaudeville circus entertainer as your president. Um, especially at a time like this in a situation where the world needs some steady hands on the tiller um, to have this horror show playing out is uh, only amplifies um, the craziness of the situation you're probably sitting there thinking or standing or whatever you're doing thinking oh god do we really need political commentary from you Avril well look if I'm going to be doing this for the next five or ten years like I said if this is the the, the fat Elvis last Vegas stand of my career, well, then I might as well find a, a hill to go and eat myself to death on. I suppose this might as well be it. This is the last days. So I might as well throw out a little bit of social commentary, a little bit of political commentary. But speaking to lots of my friends in America, they are really, really worried about where everything is heading. And I think that um, you can link all of this to, as I have already mentioned before, the decade of social media derangement. We are at the end of that decade. And I think that it's almost impossible for anybody to um, somehow climb back from the precipice or to see reason when everything is so polarized. Regardless of that, um, it was just a quite a fascinating and somewhat morbid curio of a presidential debate. I think a great part of it is the fact that once upon a time we had something of a shared reality as people. Um, we had a so we had some shared and common narratives. Um, and back, for example, in the 80s, we had the two great superpowers lined up against each other. And you sort of knew where you stood in the world. And the old I suppose, cliche of the family gathering round the news that evening. Um, this was a moment of shared reality. We had our shared inheritance, our shared history. We had more, how shall we say, commonplace reality, which made it much easier to see that we were standing on the same ground. Whereas now, I think after 10 years of being digitally curated, we're almost in a chess match with the algorithm. 
the internal algorithm. And once upon a time, you know, the the machine that challenged Garry Kasparov couldn't beat him, but now it can. And we are living under this almost ridiculous assumption that we might be able to somehow outmaneuver the algorithm, the uh, whether it's, you know, it's curating your every whim and need, it's keeping you on the platforms, it's keeping your attention, the attention economy, whatever you want to call it. Um, we still somehow think that we can come out on top, but the fact is we can't. And every single one of us has our own personally curated uh, reality. And this is one of the things that what we're falling apart on as a society is that we no longer have shared realities. We no longer have shared dreams, shared views of history. Um, we no longer have even shared ideas of science or gender or all sorts of things. And every single person, by being connected to their phone, their platforms throughout the day, is feeding this algorithm, this machine. And the idea that this machine is um, designed in a benign way in order to help you or as a human being is, again, a misnomer because that's, in, that's entirely not what it's supposed to do. We're all living in basically an episode of, the, of our own Truman Show. I mean, perhaps we need to see modern advertising almost, almost as, a, as a living organism of some description. Um, no, that's a bit too much, really, isn't it? But we think that this is a chess match that we can ultimately win. And what it's doing is it's breaking down reality. This is, I think, one of the problems that we're having now. Destroyed our element of civility. And, and how can I put it? I mean, I'm going to butcher this, but let me try and sort of frame it before I disappear. Um, and we head off into the sunset. But if you think about us as human beings, as our, we have our hunter-gatherer instincts with a 2,000-year-old morality, um, dealing with a medieval banking system and a 100, 200-year-old political system, but yet dealing with all of those things with a modern social media barrage of information that we never had to, uh, we never had to deal with before. Um, and all of these things these 20th century notions of sexual liberty, um, they're all coming, butting up against this 21st century technology. And I don't think we really stand a chance on those terms. How could we make sense of all of this? I certainly couldn't make sense of the American presidential election debate. I'm wondering how on earth we got to that place. Now, of course, people will say to me, oh, it's all a plot and all a plan and it's all been predestined and it's all part of some great Machiavellian um, globalist plot. And I think to myself, really, do you, is, is Trump part of that? Did, did they, was he placed in The Apprentice and then Twitter then installed him as the arch fiend, the crown prince of hell itself, the, the king of tweets? Was this all planned? It just seems all an uncrazy, chaotic, unlikely mess. And here we are. We're about to live through the final, you know, the end of a decade of um, social media derangement. So normally I make a few notes before 
I start off on a podcast and I ramble and I go all over the place and here and there and the other. And, you know, on this page that I'm looking at right now, I was going to finish with a story about how I almost got in a fight with the glam rock band Tiger Tales um, in London a long time ago. But that seems to have been forgotten as I got sidetracked into waffling about the American presidential election debate. Now, if 15 minutes ago I'd held some kind of a, you know, um, a vote about which you'd rather I talk about. Would you rather I talk about, on the one hand, the American presidential electoral debate, on the other, getting in a fight with a Welsh glam rock band while out of my mind? Um, you probably would have picked, Alan, tell us about that time where you nearly had your head kicked in by grown men wearing uh, high heels. My bad. My bad, really my bad. I should have started off probably with the Tiger Tail story off the top of the podcast rather than doing my Victor voice. Ah, maybe I could have married the pair of them. Well, anyway, it is what it is. So apologies to all um, anybody Russian who's gotten this far in the podcast. Uh, partly, apologies for butchering your language. It was mainly for comedic effect. You do understand that um, we have to do what we can to try and keep sane. And I mean, obviously, 20th century communism and living under communism was such a hilarious time in the human race that, uh, you know, why shouldn't I make a little fun of it? Huh? Got to find the silver lining in every cloud, huh? I should have mentioned, of course, the podcast sponsors hate couture off the top of the podcast, but it's a bit late now. www.hatecouture616.com C-O-U-T-U-R-E Hateful yet tasteful apparel. I'll be posting a few things on Instagram about them in the coming week or two, so that might be a bit better to check out. And I hope you got a little chuckle out of that, perhaps something like this. So apologies for that. You can give out to me if we ever make it back to Russia um, and you can tell Edward Snowden uh, you can tell him he can feel free to use my 12 point plan if he needs to as usual I've left all of the socials onto the last moment so I will say it is Instagram Nemtiango underscore primordial Patreon is patreon.com slash Alan Averill two capital A's and that's about it. It's a rambling all over the place podcast. And I have a few interesting ones coming up now um, where I've decided to do to put post some of my videos or my photos uh, along with some of the travels that I've taken. So I'm going to do three podcasts about Easter Island, Angkor Wat and Chernobyl, three places I visited and took loads of videos and interesting pictures. And so maybe I would advise maybe going over and subscribing to my YouTube channel. Um, you know, anyway, my friends, as I said, somewhere in the middle of all that, don't take me quite that seriously. This is Alan Averill and this is Agitators Anonymous. The end of episode 24, Metal Never Bends. <laughs>